28. And uh, I want to just begin by asking a question. My question is simply this. How many, remember, how many here grew up, you're not the only child in your home? You grew up with those other kids in your home. Just raise your hand. Just want to see how many of you. Okay, so the majority of you have others in your home. And you know, you can remember back as a child. Now just think back. You got in a little squabble. Anybody remember this? And then you can remember back that when you were in the squabble, your parents kind of mediated, you know, what was going on. And then all of a sudden, your sibling got off the hook. Anybody remember that? Anybody remember that? How many can remember that? And the first thing out of your mouth was, that's not fair. Oh, I knew that's what you thought. And so there's a sense inside of us as children that we want things to be fair, right? And you know, we never get away from that. You know, we, we kind of go along and we're serving God and we're doing the right thing and then things don't go out, work out the way we think they ought to be. Working out. We've done the right thing, and now we're experiencing negative things in life. Maybe we're suffering. Maybe we have sickness. Maybe there's sorrow, a loss. And what do we think in our mind? This is not fair. We're saying, God, what are you doing? What's wrong here? I don't understand what's going on. And so we want to look at this whole concept. If justice is what we believe to be the foundation of life, and it does not materialize, what begins to happen? We begin to question. Does God really exist? Right? And many people have this idea they become very jaded in their thinking and eventually they become very cynical. And we have a lot of people on the planet, they're not even worried about God because they don't see a lot of justice or equity or fairness in this world. And therefore they equate in their mind that God does not exist. When one believes that justice is the foundation of life, we can become very quickly disillusioned by life. And this is kind of the premise in which Job and his friends are living underneath. Job feels that God is being unfair to him. And he says so in Job chapter 27. This is just prior to the chapter we're going to be looking at. And Job, it says, he was continuing his discourse and said this, As surely as God lives... Who has denied me justice? In other words, God, you haven't treated me as I rightfully deserve to be treated. I mean, I have served you. As a matter of fact, we know from the book of Job, chapters 1 and 2, that Job was a good man. He was a blameless man. He avoided evil. He was so concerned about his kids that when they did something wrong or could have done something wrong, he interceded, he prayed, he offered sacrifices for them, and he was a man who avoided evil. And then all of a sudden, his world comes undone. You know, his children are lost by tragedy. His wealth is taken away from him. His health is stripped from him. It just seems like God is nowhere in the equation. And Job is absolutely distraught. His friends show up. They commiserate for a week. But then eventually, because of the same theological understanding in their minds, there's only one equation they can put on it. And it's simply this. Nobody would be treated this poorly unless they'd done something terribly wrong. And therefore, you know, God is punishing Job. And Job, all he needs to do is confess to God and admit that he's sinned, and God will forgive him, and then he can go back into his life of prosperity. And Job won't do that, because Job goes, I didn't do anything. 
And so Job maintains the fact that he's innocent of anything that he has knowingly done wrong. And so why is this happening to my life? Job becomes angry. We start reading through the book of Job, and if you read that book, you'll start understanding that Job becomes really upset with God. He's even demanding that God would allow him to put to, to have a court case where Job could put God on the witness stand and ask God a few questions about what in the world is he thinking and what in the world is he doing. We pick up a new character in the book in chapters 32 on. It's a young man by the name of Elihu. See, once Job gets done his discourses with these other older friends of his, they just start, you know, they're, they're just saying the same thing over and over again. They eventually become silent. And Elihu now feels like he's got to defend God. How many have ever felt like, you know, you're in a discussion with somebody and somebody's railing on God and you feel like, boy, I just better get up there and defend God. And so Elihu feels this way. He's really upset. He thinks that, you know, Job has put these guys to silence. He knows Job isn't right in his mind and he's got to defend God's honor. So he starts standing up and starts talking. And what he does is he takes something that Job has said in chapter 34. Job says... Now, this is what Elihu says. Job has said, I'm innocent, but God denies my, me justice, or God denies my justice. Although I am right, I'm considered a liar. Although I am guileless, his arrow inflicts an incurable wound. In other words, Elihu is saying, you know, Job, you're blaming God for what's happening in your life. Now, how can God do something like this terrible in your life? This can't be God. He pursues his defense of God in verse 10. So listen to me, you men of understanding. He's talking to the wise men that are there with Job. He says, far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. And then Elihu, you know, everyone says, like, what's he bringing to the equation? Well, the answer is not much, because he comes to the same conclusion as Job's friends. In the verse 11, he says, He, meaning God, repays everyone for what they have done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong and that the Almighty would pervert justice. So what Elihu is saying is simply this, that God is fair, and it means that, you know, God is punishing you, Job, because that's the only reason for you experiencing this. God would never do something that would be inequitable, therefore you've done something wrong. Sounds just like his friends, Job's friends. They're all staying the same thing. It's even what Job initially thought. That's why Job's having a problem with God. But let's say, and this is where we're going today, that justice is not the foundation of life. That's what we think it is. That's what we want it to be. But we know because we see something that neither Job nor his friends nor Elihu sees. When we read at the beginning of the book, we have a glimpse into why Job is suffering. And you know why Job is suffering? Job is suffering not because he sinned. He's suffering for the glory of God. Why is Job suffering? Because if you remember in that initial conversation, the, you know, the angel that we now know as Satan, he was a fallen angel, came to God and And God said, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody else like him. He's blameless. He's a man who fears me and he avoids evil. And Satan said to God, yeah, but, you know, the way you've treated this guy, he serves you because you've blessed him. 
He serves you because he's the richest man on the planet. He serves you because he's so healthy. He serves you for all of the benefits. Let me tell you, God, I don't want to disappoint you, but you just allow him to have a few adverse conditions, and this guy's going to really let you down. God goes, no, he's not. He has faith and confidence in me. And so we have this test that comes into play. And so Job, in spite of not understanding what's going on, in spite of the fact that he's lost everything in his life, he's lost all sense of security, he's lost his health, he's lost his family, he's lost everything in his life. In spite of all of these things, even though Job is upset with God, Job continues to believe in God. And that's the whole point of the story. That Job is just reinforcing and bringing glory and honor to God through his adversity and difficulty and suffering. There are many reasons why people suffer. You know, their friends are right. There are times when people suffer because of their sin. There is the law of sowing and reaping, but that's not always the case. And many times what happens when you and I have a very simple view of a problem, many times we can take what is true and we can misapply it to a situation. How many know if you have a a right answer but you take it to the wrong situation, you can do a lot of damage? How many know that's true? You can take a medicine that's meant to make people well and apply it in the wrong situation, you can do a lot of damage. Isn't that true? Of course it's true. And so we have to be careful. We can have the truth, but we can misapply the truth in a certain situation, not apply it correctly, and it creates a lot of havoc. And that's exactly what Job's friends did. And that's why God became angry at them. And we have to be careful sometimes that we don't do that with other people, that we don't make an assumption that we understand what's all going down here, and we have the truth, and we're going to lay it on somebody. But be very careful when we're chatting with people. Now, What's interesting in the story here is um, people sometimes wonder, chapter 28 sounds very upbeat. Some scholars would even argue this can't be Job talking. But how many know that a person of faith can have a variety of moods? How many have ever experienced that? You have faith in God, you can say great things about God, but then you can eventually be overwhelmed by doubt and despair and darkness. And in those moments, you don't sound like a person of faith. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So it's possible to be up and it's possible to be down. And I think we're getting Job on an upswing here in chapter 28. So I do think he is the speaker there. We know that God is good, but how many know there's times in our lives where the circumstances of life scream the opposite? In other words, we say, yeah, God is good, but if God is so good, why does he let this happen? If God is so good, as Randy Alcorn points out, you know, if abuse or rape or desertion or paralysis or debilitating disease or the loss of a loved one has devastated you, then this issue no longer becomes theoretical or philosophical or theological. It now becomes personal. How many know that's true? We can talk about suffering, but we can talk about it when we're healthy, and it's a lot, it sounds a lot different than when we're sick or when we're suffering, or when we feel abandoned, or we feel broken, or we feel deserted, or we feel attacked, abused, right? Everybody understand what I'm talking about. So we're not gonna, we want to just not talk about this in a, in a philosophical sense. We want to talk about it in a very real sense. How does this apply to our lives? Now, you have to remember this. Uh, 
And I like what he says, logical arguments won't satisfy. In fact, how many know that when you're down, logical arguments many times offend you? That's the last thing. You know, you don't want to necessarily have all the answers. You're just looking to be understood. We want to be loved. You know, we need help with those emotional problems of evil, not merely the logical problem of evil. But remember this, that you're a whole person. And you know, sometimes in North America, we, we do this in the English language. We talk about the mind and the heart as being totally distinct. We talk about the mind as being the area of logic and the heart as being the area of emotion. But in the Hebrew language, that was united. There wasn't a distinction there. So when they talk about the heart and the mind, they're talking about the innermost part of a person's being. And so what we need to understand is we need to know this, that our hearts, which includes our mind, our thinking, our emotions, all of this, you know, we can't just address you know, our emotions in a very superficial way. We need to have a completed picture. We need to have a a right understanding. We need to embrace truth in order to eventually affect our emotions in the right way. So, uh, quick fix feelings won't sustain you over the long haul. On the other hand, deep-rooted beliefs, having a worldview grounded in Scripture will allow you to persevere and to hold on to a faith that's built on solid rock that in spite of the challenges and the pain and the suffering and the sorrows keep you standing like Job did through his time. Now, we need to understand that God himself is a suffering God. You know, it's only in Christianity that God suffers. All the other religions in the world You know, God's all-powerful. But in Christianity, we know that God suffers with us. And we know that because the revelation in the New Testament is that God became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, what we notice is that when he sees suffering, he's not indifferent to it. How many appreciate that? And the Bible says over and over again, Jesus was moved with compassion and he ministered miracles and healings in people's lives because he's suffering with us. He's not indifferent to us in our pain and in our sorrow. He knows what it's like to suffer. And just like in our lives, when it seems that evil is prevailing, you ever had those moments in life where evil seems to be prevailing? Anybody have those experiences where the bad seems to be winning out over the good? But Jesus had the same thing. He was coming to the cross, and he said this in Luke chapter 22. Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour When darkness reigns. Do you know there are moments when darkness is reigning? How many have noticed that? Where evil seems to be prevailing. Anybody notice that happening? And we look around our world today and we see this and we see that and we say, you know, in that situation, darkness is reigning. But you know, here's the good news. It says, where sin abounds, what means where there's a lot of sin, you know, the next part of the text says what? Grace does much more abound. And so wherever we see darkness, we know that grace is about ready to come and prevail over that darkness. And the greater the darkness, the greater God's grace coming to prevail over that darkness. So what we have for the majority of the book of Job now is this dialogue between himself and his friends regarding the very nature of what runs the foundation of the world. You know, John Walton in his book, says Job and his friends think that they know how the cosmos or the universe is ordered. They have this idea of the retribution principle, which has justice as a foundation. Let me just change, that's a theological term, retribution principle. Let me tell you it this way. The sowing and reaping principle. 
Now, how many know that if you do certain things, you get certain results, right? There's a sowing and reaping. But unfortunately, even though there's that principle at work, sometimes that principle gets overruled. How many have noticed that? It doesn't always play out that way. That's the thing. That's the thing we need to understand. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes the wicked person gets what the right, righteous person deserves. Sometimes the righteous person gets what the wicked person deserves. That's what Ecclesiastes says. That's what Job was pointing out in his arguments. He says it doesn't always work that way, and he's right. And so that this is not the foundational principle upon which we base life. And if you base life on that principle, you'll be disappointed because there's so much unfairness in life. Do you know it's unfair for some of you that you were born in Canada? You know it was unfair that some of you were born where you actually had three meals a day and clothes on your back and a good education. How many know that was unfair? Compared to somebody who was born maybe in a third world country where they were starving. How many know that was unfair? See, you always think of unfairness as what's not, what am I not getting? But sometimes our unfairness is what we do get and others haven't got. So this fairness thing is a very comparative thing. And we tend to make, you know, fairness a comparative thing, don't we? You know, man, I wish I looked better. I mean, I wish, you know, I was smarter. Yeah, I wish I was richer. We could go on and on and talk about what's fair and what's not fair. But the Bible says this, to whom God gives much, he requires much. Oh, so there's going to be some sort of a sorting out of things. Well, yes, eventually. And you see, unfortunately for Job and his friends, they lived in the Old Testament. They did not have a very well-defined understanding of the afterlife. But you and I live in the New Testament. We understand what's about to happen. We know we're going to stand before God as judge, and we will all give an account for our lives based on what God has blessed us with. You know, for the guy that has ten talents and he only produces to the same degree if the guy has one talent, how many know that's not good? You know, some of us think, hey, man, I'm doing good. I'm doing something. Yeah, but if you're a ten-talent person and you're underproductive, that's not a good thing. I just want to point that out. You know, we could go on and on and talk about fairness. What I'm trying to bring out to you is that the book of Job is not about suffering, ultimately. Yes, it does speak to the issue, but ultimately it's about wisdom. It's a wisdom piece of literature. And now as we turn to chapter 28, we have this amazing poem. And uh, let me just keep going here. Uh, God's perspective on the foundation of the cosmos is based on causes, all instigated by him and not on effects, what humans experience. Because you see, that's how we evaluate things, based on what we've learned from things. But God is basing things on what he's doing. That's what John Walton is saying. There is no foundational principle that runs the cosmos. The cosmos is run by God's continuous and ongoing activity. In other words, what he's trying to say is that God himself is running the world. And he's running it based on who he is. And he's more than just just. God is also merciful. God is also wise. God is also good. So he's running it on a whole bunch of things besides just fairness. And that's what I'm trying to get across today. But let's take a look at this beautiful poem that Job begins to relate to us. And it's broken down into three stanzas. And I want to look at them. And the first, uh, the first stanza is simply this. Uh, and it's dealing with wisdom. <clears throat> it's the nature of wisdom. What is wisdom really like? <clears throat> well, in this poem, we've discovered that, first of all, wisdom is elusive. In other words, it's hard to attain. It's hard to find. It's hard to discover. 
You know, I'm going to suggest to you that with human beings, it's impossible to get. Human beings don't have wisdom. We don't want to hear this, Pastor. In spite of all of our great strides and our amazing creativity and ingenuity, which I believe is God-given, wisdom is not inherent in the human family. If we were wise, we wouldn't sin. If we sin, it's because we're not wise. How's that? I can show you how we're not wise. Real quick, I can prove it to you. And now we have a list of the great examples of human ingenuity and creating and creativity and reaching parts of our world that other creatures are unable to reach or exploit. And he picks it up in Job 28, verse 1. He's going to talk about the fact that men have the ability to mine the earth. He goes on here, there's a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the furthest recesses for the ore in the blackest darkness. In other words, men have the capacity to have light. They can see in the dark. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft. They can cut into the rock. In places untouched by human feet, far from other people, they dangle and sway. Can you imagine lowering somebody down? I mean, that's what they were able to do. The earth from which food comes is transformed below us by fire. Lapis, lazuli, sapphire, it's another name for sapphire, comes from its rocks and its dust contain nuggets of gold. Now, how many know that mining practices have only recently changed because of our technology, but for hundreds of years, we've been mining the earth. It's quite dangerous, by the way. And people have done that, you know. And they've brought up all kinds of riches, you know, gold and silver and precious jewels. And, and we've built great civilizations. You know, you know that, right? That's true. And we're still marveling at people's ability to do that. Some of us had the privilege of going to Israel a few years ago, and we actually walked through Hezekiah's tunnel. And Hezekiah's tunnel is an engineering feat because what happened was King Hezekiah was surrounded by an Assyrian army. And what he did is, he, he, before they got there, he wanted to move the water, uh, source of water from outside the walls to inside the walls. And, and so what he did is he had the engineers start on one side where they wanted the water and where the water was, and they started drilling through an entire mountain of rock. And they went a long ways. And we were in that tunnel zigzagging through there, and you could see where they had stopped at one place and were going a little ways and realized that's not the right direction. And somehow, they literally zigzagged through a mountain until both sides met in the middle. And today, engineers still can't figure out how they did that. And the water runs at a one degree designed to get the water down from the top to the bottom. You know, it's just an amazing feat of engineering. Why am I saying all of that? I'm trying to point out that human beings are extremely creative. Human beings have a lot of abilities, and many times we're surprised at how, how amazing some of these things are. As a matter of fact, Job is going to say that human beings are superior to the animals. Now, I know some of you animal lovers, you'll not like to hear that, but it is true. We, we can love our animals, but they're not as bright as human beings. It says here in verse 7, no bit, bird of prey knows that hidden path. Speaking of the mining. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it. No lion prowl is, prowls there. People assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all of its treasures. They search the source of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. But is that wisdom? The question is raised. 
No, look at verses 12 and 13. Where can wisdom be found? Think about it. We have plummeted the depths of the earth. We have discovered its treasures. We've ascended into space and explored the regions beyond. Though as humans we're capable of great feats, wisdom is beyond us. Look at verse 12. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortals comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. Wow. What is he saying? He's saying we can do all these amazing things, but we just can't find wisdom. We're not talking knowledge here. We're talking wisdom. Wisdom is beyond our ability to find. It's not discovered in our world. Verse 14 adds that wisdom is not even in those places that are hostile to humans, the deep and the sea. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. Dr. Longman points out the deep and the sea were regarded as forces of chaos and evil in the ancient Near East. It says even in these places that we don't understand, these forces of darkness and these places of evil, wisdom is not to be found there. So he moves on in the stanza. We've looked at the elusiveness of wisdom, but now... He wants to give us the value of wisdom. Why is wisdom so important? Well, first of all, anything that is rare and difficult to acquire is of great value. How many know that's true? Whatever we think is difficult to achieve, we put high value on that. Isn't that right? Yeah, it's the way it works. We put value on that. Wisdom cannot be bought. Look at verse 15. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophar, with precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rupees. Boy, I tell you, to get wisdom, I tell you, it's way up there. It goes on, as Dr. Longman points out, wisdom is uh, inaccessible to normal human resources. The major point of the argument is that wisdom cannot be purchased. You can't buy it. Now, you can buy an education, but you can't purchase wisdom. It's totally different than education or knowledge. How many know in our culture we have a high value in education? That's good. I like education. I have a high value for it, too. But it's not wisdom. There's a difference. There's a distinction between knowledge and wisdom. We're seeing it over and over again. The desire to understand. When, when going through times of great suffering, we, we begin to say, I want to understand why. Everybody in this room, we go through a hard time and come, why is this happening to me? You ever ask yourself the question, why am I going through what I'm going through? What's going on here? Where are you, God, in this thing? We ask these questions. We want understanding. We want wisdom. And so, again, how many know when you're saying a poem, when you repeat the refrain, we know that's the important part. Notice what he says in verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? Hmm. Humans, Gerald Wilson says, may be immensely skilled at mining, but their seemingly unstoppable skills do not transfer to wisdom. Now the sages, which is the wise man, in general, and Job's friends in particular, assume that one can find and exploit this orderly wisdom, much like the physical resources of the earth. But the process is not easy in their minds. 
It takes patience, diligence, care, intelligence over generations. But with time, they believe God's wisdom yields to the scrutiny or the search of the wise person. And mastery over wisdom, in their mind, offers mastery over life. And what Job is saying, and which I believe is true, is you and I will never master wisdom. Matter of fact, it's really hard to secure. We're going to talk about that. What the real point of the story is simply this. We want wisdom because we want to know what's going on. We want to understand. We really want to be in control. That's what it comes down to. And you know what happens when you start suffering? You're losing control. And that's frustrating. It really is frustrating. You're just, you're going, I, you know, how many have ever gone through a stretch of life where your life is unraveling? It's falling apart. You're losing control. Everything that once worked no longer works. It's very, it's very debilitating. It's very frustrating. And then you have people around you, and everybody means well. Everybody understands it. They mean well, and they're coaching you, and they're applying all kinds of truth, and many things of what they're saying, you go, yeah, that's true. But it doesn't apply in this situation. It's a tough road to hoe, basically. And so that's the problem. It's not working. You know, now when we start suffering... It's forcing us to do one thing. We're forced to trust God. We really are. We're forced to trust God. Or we can abandon God. We have a choice. That's part of our will. What troubles us is that if we have done everything we know to do what is right and things aren't working out, we wonder as believer, is God fair? We're not just asking, is life fair? We're going, no, no, God's in control of everything. Is God fair? That's what's going through our minds. Where's God in this? I thought God is just. And how many can see that in the book of Job, this idea of justice keeps coming up, you know? Well, God's just, therefore there must be a different reason. But doing the right thing doesn't always produce the right results. As a matter of fact, the book of Ecclesiastes brings this out. Sometimes, you know, you're doing the right thing and you end up getting what the bad guy deserves. You're the good guy and you get what the bad guy deserves. And then the bad guy who should be getting, you know, fired from the job gets the promotion. That's really frustrating, right? Anybody relate to this? And some of you are really steaming right now because you can think of incidences where you did the right thing. You know, sometimes you've done the right thing. Some people have done the right thing and lost their jobs. And the guy that was the schmuck and did the wrong thing, just got the promotion. You go, how did that work out? You know, and then you get people saying, how did that work for you? You did the right thing, you did the honest thing, and it didn't turn out. And Ecclesiastes points that out, and Job points that out in one of his arguments. He goes, hey, you know what? Sometimes the bad guys live a pretty good life. You know, some of these guys that are making a lot of money, and they've got all the cars and all the nice life, then they're bad guys. What's the deal? You know, yeah, I'm like, Glenn, hey, what's the deal here? Raise my hands. Hey, what's going on here? That's not supposed to be working that way. God, I thought you were fair. Right? And that's what the question is being raised in the book. But life is not mechanical, folks. You see, if, if we had it where, you know, I just did the right things, got the right results, who needs God? I just keep doing the right things and get the right results. It just becomes a, mechan a mechanical way of doing life. I don't have to trust God. I just keep doing what I know is the right thing to do. 
But God didn't design it that way, folks. He designed it so that sometimes we get these quirks in life where we can't figure it out and we have force to now trust God. And he's not just running the universe based on his justice. Sometimes God's running the universe based on his mercy. Sometimes he's letting the bad guys get away with stuff because he's allowing them space to repent. He does say that in the Bible. You know, God is doing some other things on this planet besides running what we think is the fair way of doing things. Everybody here likes the fact that we get eternal life. We get forgiveness. You know, that wasn't fair. Certainly wasn't fair to Jesus, was it? What we ultimately need to learn is that life is about trusting God who is the ultimate source of wisdom. And wisdom is a gift. Wisdom is neither sought nor bought. It is freely given by God. I love what he says in the book of James. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. So here these guys are. You can have all the money in the world you can't buy. You can search for it as for hidden treasure. But God says all you need to do is ask me. I love this. How many think this is a big advantage? It says, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. In other words, you may not even deserve it, but he'll still give it. Aren't you glad for that? And it will be given to you, he says. You just need to ask. Well, let me move on to the third stanza of the poem. First of all, wisdom is elusive. Secondly, it has amazing value. But what is the source of wisdom? Do you know apart from God, there is no wisdom? Oh, there's an earthly wisdom. There's a demonic wisdom. There's a way that people in the world thinks is wise, but it's unlike the wisdom that comes from God. In Job 28, verse 23, it says, God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. In other words, you know, Proverbs 8 basically says God created wisdom just before he created the world. God knows where wisdom is. Not only is God wise, he created it. He created wisdom. So it's not only an attribute of God. He created this wisdom. He knows how to secure it. Now, he goes on to say here, For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And he said to the human race, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. So if you want to know what wisdom is, fear God. You want to know what wisdom is? Wisdom teaches you that when you truly fear God, you avoid the wrong things. Now, I, liked, I, I decided to do a little word study here, and I have these biblical scholars. It's kind of helpful to borrow these guys with their definitions. But, you know, Dr. Longman says, the statement demands a particular attitude in one's relationship to Israel's covenant God, and that is communicated by the noun fear. He goes on to say this, the verb has a semantic range. Well, doesn't that sound profound? Semantic range just means there's many meanings to the word fear, all right? But let me give it to you. When we talk about the fear of God, this is the wide range of meaning. It could be called respect, awe, or utter terror. Now, how many can just imagine? You've lived your life for yourself. You've messed up with other people. You've taken advantage of people. You've lived a selfish life. And one day, you didn't even believe in God, but you know what? Just because you don't believe in God doesn't mean he doesn't exist. You can be in denial. You can be blind. Could you imagine standing before God one day and all of a sudden you're in his presence? At that moment, I think the fear of God that's going to come into that person is going to be utter terror. That's my opinion. Utter terror. 
I, I believe that with all my heart. It'll be utter terror. They'll be going, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. Big time trouble. Do you know, for some of us, it'll be absolute awe. You'll be just overwhelmed. You'll just go, I, I had no idea. The magnitude of God's grace and glory, it'll just overwhelm us. We'll be in awe of him. Do you know, one of the reasons why people sin, here's the number one reason. Why do Christians sin? We lack the fear of God. Come on now. See, if you have the fear of God, you say to yourself, I can't do that. I have a respect for God. Actually, I have a little bit of the terror of God in me. See, I have an equation. I'll give it to you. You know, my dad really helped me out. My dad was, um, he helped me. I learned to respect my dad. I was in awe of my dad. First of all, he was over six feet, or six feet. He moved furniture for a living, so he was muscular, over 200 pounds, and he also didn't have an extreme amount of patience. So if you messed up, you could incur the wrath of my father. He was a bit intimidating, so I had a little bit of the utter terror. Like, you don't mess with this dude. You just don't get on his bad side, okay? Does everybody understand this? So, you know, when I was going to do something wrong, I had to think about this. Okay, if I'm going to do this, I could run into that, and I don't want to have that experience. You go, did you do all that thinking? As a little kid, all you take is a few good spankings, and it kind of instills something inside of your mind. There's consequences to this behavior. I don't think that's necessarily evil, by the way. You know, but did I love my dad? Totally. Did I respect him? Yeah, he's a, he was a really a smart man, and... I was in awe of him. I mean, you know, he ran a business still in existence today. It's amazing. You know, he's dead, but his business is still going. So he did some interesting things. I'm in awe. Now, I say all of that, that it says, indisputably, however, is the basic premise that to fear Yahweh, or God, is to stand in a subservient position to him, to acknowledge one's dependency on him. So when we fear God, we're basically saying that we are saying, God, I depend on you, and I obey you. I do what you ask me to do. That's powerful, isn't it? You know, I was reading in my devotional time in the book of Jeremiah this morning. It's amazing how as human beings, I'm in chapter 40 to 42. I'm reading through there, and here's what the story goes. You know, the Babylonians have just taken them, brought them into captivity, and appointed a, a governor, and, you know, somebody murdered him. That's not a good thing. And so now that some of the Jewish people are still hanging out in the promised land are going, boy, we're really afraid now what's going to happen to us. So they come to the prophet Jeremiah and say, hey, what should we do? We're thinking of heading down to Egypt. It might be a little safer there. But could you ask God what to do? And Jeremiah goes, okay, I'll ask him. And they said, whatever you say, whatever God tells us to do, we'll do. And so Jeremiah comes back and says, hey, listen, I know you're fearful and stay in the land, but hang in there. It's going to work out for you. And God will bless you here. But don't go down to Egypt, otherwise you're going to perish. You're going to have everything that you're afraid of is going to happen to you down there. That's not a word from God. We're going down to Egypt. And I've learned something about us as human beings. We all want to know the will of God until it conflicts with what we want. And then we've got a problem. Isn't that the truth? And that's where the whole issue of obedience comes down. You know, I want to do my thing, and this is what the Word of God says, and somehow we do all this mental gymnastics until we do our thing. But I just want to point out to you that when we do that, we're just, it's just another form of disobedience, and we're going to get the end result, which is not good, ultimately, for us. And God knows that. 
What we discover from the New Testament is a contrast between humanity. Uh, oh, this is important, but I'll, I'll just skip it anyway. It's running out of time. We discover from the New Testament a contrast between what humanity or culture thinks is wisdom and what God's state is wisdom. What that earlier text was simply saying, these guys were now shifting from a, an issue of thinking of this book as, or God as just, moving towards a position of what's what real wisdom is. It's very important. So what is wisdom? Well, it's defined for us in the New Testament. James, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by their good life and by their deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Isn't that interesting? Wisdom is a life of humility, which is a life of dependency on God, which is reflected in doing good things for others. It says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it. Don't deny the truth. Such wisdom doesn't come, from, come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Those are the qualities, folks, that tell you if somebody's wise or not. Are those things in your life? That's because you trust God. That's because you fear God. That's a life of wisdom. That's walking with God. Now, do you know that pride does not permit a person to learn from another person, whereas humility does and even goes further and it compels obedience? Wisdom starts with this fear. Further, wisdom is not just a body uh, of knowledge, but rather a relationship. The wise must have a dependent relationship with God that makes them listen to Him. That's wisdom. Now, let me go back. Well, let's just say this first. True wisdom is not to gain mastery over life. That's what we want. We want to be able to control things. But to learn to depend on God and His mercy in all things. Fear of God is admission of human powerlessness and submission to the power of God. Now I'm going to go back to the original premise. We'll close with this. Is God ruling our life based on fairness? If he was, we're in trouble. Right? Because like, like what Randy Alcorn says, whenever you feel tempted to ask God, why God? Why me and why is this happening to me? I want you to ask the same question in the next breath. I want you to look to the cross and say, why did you do that for me? Not why are you doing this to me, but why are you doing that for me? That changes the perspective a lot, isn't it? See, when we feel like God doesn't care about us because we're suffering, we need to take a look at the cross and say, but yeah, but why did he do that for me? You know, John Stott tells a story. I'm going to close with the story. It's very powerful. It's from a book called The Cross of Christ. He tells about billions of people seated on a great plane before God's throne. I've shared this before, but it's too powerful. I've got to share it again. He said, many shrink back, but some in the crowd came to the front with angry voices. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped one woman as she ripped the sleeve to reveal the tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. Other sufferers expressed their t- complaints against God for the evil and suffering he had allowed. What did God know of weeping and hunger and hatred? You know, God, you live a sheltered life here in heaven. Someone from Hiroshima 
That's where they got the atomic bomb. People born deformed, others murdered, each sent forward a leader. They concluded that before God could judge them, he should be sentenced to live on earth as a man to endure the suffering that they had endured. And so they pronounced the sentence upon God. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Let his close friends betray him. Let him face false charges. Let a prejudiced jury triumph and a cowardly judge convict him. Let him be tortured. Let him be utterly alone. Then bloody and forsaken, let him die. The place grew silent, and after the sentence against God had been pronounced, no one moved, and a weight fell on each face. For suddenly all knew that God had already served the sentence. Some people can't believe God would create a world in which people would suffer so much. Isn't it more remarkable that God would create a world in which no one would suffer more than he? You see, if we have only this earthly life to consider, then yes, many injustices that seem to go unpunished, that happen over and over again, we need to remind ourselves of one important truth. Not only does God suffer with us, but he's given us eternal life. I want you to think about that for a moment. Just reflect on that thought. If you have received Christ today, you have eternal life. Not only is it a quality of life, but it's a quantity of life. It's an everlasting life. You know, we're all appointed to die. Let's get into our heads. We're all going to suffer on this planet. Suffering is a part of the human condition. It's part of what's happening down here. If you haven't figured that out. If you haven't suffered, I hate to tell you, you will suffer. It's just going to happen. It's part of life. But let me just tell you this. There's a day as a child of God that you're going to step out of this earthly life into your forever life. And when that day happens, there will be no suffering. There will be no sorrow. There will be no sin, no selfishness, no tears, no death, no dying, no aging, no broken relationships. You won't have to go to the spa. You won't have to take certain vitamins. You won't be schmucked about and scammed. I'm serious. You'll just be able to live forever. Isn't that great? We think that's awesome. You know, when we get to heaven, we're going to look back on all of this and go, yeah, so glad that was a short period of time. I'm so glad this is a forever time. I don't have to battle depression anymore. I don't have to battle this. I don't have to battle that. I don't have to battle this propensity in my soul for this, toward this sin. That's all done. It's over. It's finished. As a matter of fact, Paul says it this way. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What an amazing thing. You know, as I was meditating on what I was going to preach today, and sometimes, you know, when we're suffering something or we're struggling with something or we're going through a difficulty, and sometimes we don't even have a choice. You know what I mean by that? We're just stuck. Anybody, know what, anybody can relate to that? You're just kind of stuck in a situation and there's no escaping it. And you know what people normally do? It's just this resignation. This fatalism, I have to endure it, right? But I wrote myself a little note. It's one thing to surrender to God's will because of our present difficulty. 
because it doesn't permit another option. It's another thing to accept it willingly and ultimately joyously because we trust in God's goodness. That's a whole different way of looking at it. You know, some of you, you're just resigned yourself to things. You're just resigned yourself to this condition. You've resigned yourself to this situation. You're just enduring. But God wants you to joyfully accept his will. Embrace his goodness. And have a hope that transcends beyond this life. We have a hope, folks. You know, I shared that last week. A man came, he was distressed. He had lost vision of God. And when you lose a vision of God, you lose hope. But I'll tell you, when you see God, no matter how terrible your situation is, there's always hope. Let's stand this morning. Just every head bowed, we're closing a word of prayer. I know this has been a really intensely difficult topic to explain to you even. Quite theological. Quite challenging. Hopefully, quite insightful and encouraging. Aren't you glad you don't have to say to God, but that's not fair. But you can say to God, you're the all-wise God. And I know, as Paul said, that all things work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. The biggest decision we have to make is trust Christ. Do you realize that? That's the biggest decision. If you don't know Christ this morning, I would invite you to make that choice, to say, you know what? I want to know you, Jesus. I want to have eternal life. I want to have this hope within me. You know, in the world, you will have tribulation. Jesus said that. You're going to have suffering and sorrow, but be of good cheer. I've overcome this world. We don't just live for this life, folks. We live for the hope that transcends this life. I love that. Isn't that great? But while we're living in this life, we still have a hope. You know what? God, God can do amazing things. But I like what those three Hebrew children said. You know, God can deliver us from the fiery furnace. And by the way, he did. But they said, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to trust him. And that's what we need to hear today. Let's just keep trusting him. And not worry about, is this fair or not fair? Just say, Lord, I trust you. How many here today? You're just going through a hard time. So there be head bowed. You're going through a difficult time, a time of challenge, a time of suffering, a time of difficulty in your life. I want to pray with you today. Because you know something? You know, it's, it's easy to be talking when you're not suffering. But when you're in a suffering mode, it's a lot more difficult, isn't it, to have that hope. But we need the God's word. Isn't the word of God good? It's reassuring, isn't it? So, Father, I pray today for my brothers and sisters who are struggling and despairing, maybe, and they're up, they're down, they're all over the map. But, Lord, today may they recognize that though things may not appear fair to them, your grace, your mercy, your love is with them, you're suffering with them, Lord, and you're guiding them, Lord, to some purpose in their life that maybe they can't get now. Job never got it, you never explained it to Job. But at the end of the day, Job endured the suffering and in the process brought great glory to your name. And Lord, I pray that we'll bring great glory to your name. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.